Well, <laughs> uh, I think that the second way you described is uh, generally speaking better than the first. Um, it uh, is important that the metta be infused with uh, equanimity, which means wisdom. You know, and so um, if somebody is is wretched, uh, to say, may you be happy with a kind of um, agitation or or demand, uh, you know, to to imagine that in in a way that is um, somehow attached, then, of course, as soon as you open your eyes, you'll feel disappointed and uh, dismayed. Um, It's really, it is the purification of our relationship to this person, to the world, and it's our gift of a certain quality of energy, which does have its effect the essential balance is between metta and and equanimity. It's only because we have equanimity that we can say things are the way that they are. I can accept that things are the way that they are. That, in fact, we have the patience and the courage and the endurance to keep generating metta. You know, may you be happy in the face of continued suffering is not easy. And so it, it takes a tremendous basis of equanimity and um, inner peace to be able to to continually make that offering of that gift. So I, I do prefer uh, in my own practice of metta resting the mind, resting the attention in the phrases. Uh, the number of phrases or the um, exact wording of the phrases is very personal. Um, To say, may you be happy or may you be peaceful is a way of saying, may my heart open. I personally wouldn't phrase it, you know, like open your heart, which which sounds... um, like it could fall into that sort of demand. You know, what if you say that and it doesn't happen? You know, are you then angry at yourself or or do you try harder to manufacture a certain feeling or experience? You know, it's not quite the way to practice because it is very delicate. You're um, making this offering and you're saying these phrases yet without... Uh, that intensity of demand and attachment. You know, I must make it so by this afternoon. And if I'm not sitting here experiencing great waves of what I consider loving kindness, then I failed or it's, it's no good or whatever. Um, so I say again and again and again and again, uh, you know, to rest the attention in the phrases and not to try to force any kind of feeling. Just let it evolve. Kathy? Just saying, I'm letting go. Not as a, I guess as a 
Okay. Okay, I have to. Being a deluded type, I have to stop you because it's it's all fading as you speak. Okay, in terms of the first thing, uh, I don't think you need to try to discern whether you're feeling something or thinking the feeling. I mean, that's too fine a distinction. Uh, it's just to be aware as best you can of what's happening. Um, I wouldn't move too quickly uh, in a fear-driven way from person to person uh, because there are other feelings to be felt there. Um, you don't want to use any of these practices, uh, although one can. It's not that ultimately helpful to use any of these practices uh, in a way where you're trying to hold down what feelings are coming up and somehow superimposing this very fine veneer of love or compassion or, or forgiveness at the same time trying to quite defensively hold other things in abeyance. So um, pace yourself. You know, there will be uncomfortable feelings and, and some very, very difficult uh, memories or feelings, but that's part of it, you know, is, is the full an integrated experience of that. And when you say, let go, um, I think the best way to be saying something like that is having allowed these difficult feelings to come up, uh, to feel the burden of them, to feel the pain of them, to recognize you're the one who's suffering from them. This person has gone on, uh, alive or not, you know, and, and you're sitting here in some way stuck or bound to that experience, bearing the pain of it, feeling the, the pain of the anger, whatever it is. And so it's out of compassion for yourself that you make that wish. It's not out of an idealism or... Um, trying to suit a certain image of yourself or of goodness or, or whatever. It's because you feel the pain of not and out of the greatest love and compassion for yourself you make that wish and you do uh, all of the, the steps of relinquishment, of letting go, of uh, letting be and moving on. Rebecca? Well, any kind of training process um, both makes qualities like uh, mindfulness and concentration uh, and metta more familiar and uh, more readily available. I mean, just coming here to a retreat is, is a huge difference from how most people live day to day. And so one could ask that same question about that. You know, why should I come to a retreat and be silent and do all that in order to prepare for a mindful life? And we do that because the, uh, the simplification and the intensification of our experience being on retreat and being silent is like a training ground, you know, so that our 
our sense of being mindful, our, our ready return to being mindful, um, our confidence in ourselves and our ability to bring forth these qualities in a variety of circumstances strengthens enormously. And with that confidence, we can basically be fearless in many circumstances. You know, but we do. We, we train intensively. Okay, let's train intensively. <laughs> Do you have any questions about your practice? Anything that you're experiencing? Less. Um, I think the answer uh, is mixed, actually. Um, on a certain level, all we might need to do, say in that state of very intense reaction, is to see the very nature of the reaction in terms of it being impermanent, um, it being conditioned, not necessarily knowing exactly what all of the conditioning agents are, but seeing that in that sense, it's, it's a uh, created or conditioned thing, so it's insubstantial. It doesn't have an inherent existence apart from all the things that made it come to be. And that is the great teaching of relativity. You know, um, it's always astonished me, that fact, uh, because we can get so lost in our own point of view that it seems incredible that other people can be experiencing exactly the same circumstance and feel very differently about it. You know, somebody can say something and some people will feel it and consider it to be very harsh and other people will find it quite frank and bold and they'll have a whole other feeling about it even though it was exactly the same thing. So when the intense reactiveness comes in the mind 
right in that moment without looking back to the particular things leading up to it, we can see that it's a conditioned thing, it's a relative thing, it's insubstantial in that sense. Um, it's born out of conditions, it's impermanent. And so even in that really tormented state, perhaps, we can be free because of our relationship to it. Sometimes it is interesting to see the particular conditions. It's very insightful um, to understand our own tendencies. So it's like uh, knowing that you tend toward greed or grasping. You might understand things um, in that light or knowing that you tend toward delusion. You understand things in that light. Uh, If you find yourself rigidly holding on, there's probably some fear producing that rigidity. And, and you can get quiet enough to feel it. It's a little different than a, a probing, analytical sense of trying to go deeper, dive deeper, see what's underlying something, um, because that can be quite forceful and impatient and frustrating because it isn't always very clear. Um, A lot comes back in some utterly strange and simple way to the teaching about the fork and the broccoli or the fork and the potato or whichever food object you would like to to use in this example. Um, Because if we have an experience of the present moment, which is that object, we aim the attention toward it, and then we meet it with a careful modulation of energy. If there's too little energy, then, as you have heard, (laughs) it's like the fork is just hanging there in your hand. But if there's too much energy, it's like you take the fork and you bash it through the broccoli or whatever, perhaps through the plate, and everything goes flying. Um, Sometimes when we get interested uh, in that kind of investigation, you know, what's under here and what's under here and what's under here, it's like, it becomes like taking the fork and bashing the piece of food. Our energy is too, is too ardent in a way. It's too strained or um, it's too forceful. And so I tend not to, uh, in my own practice, do that a lot because of that energetic consequence, but more just try to meet what's going on in the moment, see it in the light of Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, if I can, and allow it, if it's going to reveal a hidden layer and a hidden layer and a hidden layer, just allow that to do that by itself because I'm present for it, and not because I'm, I'm digging in there. Susan? Yeah, this was regarding your talk last night. Um, you said if you were experiencing panic sometimes, that would be a sign to look for the level of faith. So I tend to experience panic, so I checked my faith barometer and found that the third type of faith of confidence tends to be lacking a lot and I have lots of doubts. And then you had also said, um, I think it was later in the talk when you were talking about realizing Um, in, in a fundamental sense everything comes back to mindfulness Um, if you can be aware of the hope, fear, hope, fear, hope, fear um, movement in the mind and the quality of your awareness is 
is actually being mindful of that, then inherent in that degree of awareness is is confidence, is trust, uh, is openness, is fully being present. So that's always the first um, avenue or the first avenue of approach is to actually be mindful of what's happening. That's like our ultimate refuge because the nature of mindfulness or awareness is not going to change depending on what it's watching. It could be watching the most miserable, um, tortured state of mind, or it could be watching the loveliest, most uplifting state of mind, and the actual nature or the quality of mindfulness does not change. That's why it's considered to be ultimately freeing, because there's no circumstance There's no condition, there's no arising, there's no experience that's going to come up that suddenly we cannot be mindful of, you know, or that our mindfulness is ruined because it's having to incorporate or include this nasty thing, you know, as as opposed to all these nice things. So the first thing always is, is to be mindful. The more we rest in awareness, in changing states, the more trust we have in the power of awareness because we see what I just described. You know, it's not, it's not abstract, it's not imaginary, and it's not removed from your experience um, in this day or in this sitting. We see it's absolutely true that we can be mindful of this and we can be mindful of that and we can be mindful of that. And if we forget then sooner or later we'll remember. That is, um, in some ways, that's the function of a, a teacher in this tradition, is to help us remember perhaps sooner than we might have on our own. So you may have noticed that in interviews, for example, <laughs> no matter what you say, <laughs> some way or another, you're met with a response of, can you be aware of it? You know, how do you feel about it? Were you with it? Did you hate it? Could you actually be present? Could you note it? Um, It's all variations on a theme. So sometimes, you know, we joke and we say that teaching this is really the easiest thing in the world. You know, you find five ways of saying the same thing. (laughs) Could you note it? Could you be with it? Are you aware of it? Um, And that's all you need to do. Because it's true. And so it's, it's a question of experiencing that enough. Like, oh, I can be aware of this too. I can be aware of that too. I can be aware of that too. And the confidence grows. It grows out of our own direct experience. That's the best way. And so we'd say, I'd say, first of all, learn to trust the quality of mindfulness. But check it. Trust it because you've tested it. You know, see if in fact it's true. You can be aware of this, and you can be aware of this, and you can be aware of this, and the nature of awareness does not change. That's your investigation. And I wouldn't doubt your own sincerity. Um, because that more than likely is, is some kind of old tape arising in the mind saying that you're not doing it well enough, or you're not caring enough, or you're not practicing right or something like that. Um, All of those tapes arise continually for people and they get highlighted in some ways in the practice. So once again, the point becomes, can you be aware of it? Can you watch it? Can you see it? Because if you can, right in that moment, your practice is perfect. Even though the very thing that you're observing is not very pleasant and were you to believe it and spin out on it it would be uh, quite dreadful in that moment of simply observing it you're doing all that you need to do and so you can completely trust your practice in a single moment of being mindful and don't feel despair or dismay because that doesn't last It doesn't last for anybody. The point is to renew that again and again and again, to remember. 
as soon as possible. Just be mindful. Just be mindful. Just be mindful. Um, that's actually how the progression or the movement in the practice happens. We're mindful for a moment or two or three. We're completely lost, disconnected, reactive, whatever. And then we remember. We simply come back. It's over a longer period of time that the proportions change of how many moments of mindfulness in a row there tend to be, how many moments of spacing out there tend to be. But it's always a moment-to-moment process. Um, You can trust your practice. You know, take a look at what your experience actually is, not in terms of the content of what's arising, but in terms of your willingness to be present with it. That's why it's the Hindsight Meditation Society, because you can't tell that in an afternoon. You know, you can only look back and say, oh yeah, I used to get caught in that for, you know, three and a half days every time it came up in my mind. Now I'm getting caught in it and completely lost in it and driven by it, you know, for an hour and a half. It's not, generally speaking, a very pleasant hour and a half, you know, and so most people don't jump up and down with joy and say, oh, good. But if we look back, then we see that the change from being completely lost and and cut off and reactive for three and a half days, the change from three and a half days to an hour and a half is a huge change in the quality of our lives. But that doesn't happen overnight. You know, it goes from three and a half days to three and a quarter days. And slowly we find that those proportions are changing. You know, so over a period of time, if you look back, that's exactly what you see. Okay, it's time to walk. Thank you. I have a few announcements I'd like to make. Um, First of all, yes, there were pews in this room when we first came to IMS 20 years ago. I have a better memory than Joseph in general. Second, um, our, our scheduled plan is to hold a kind of farewell ritual tonight. The only question is whether um, our friend Dan Goldman, who's supposed to come tomorrow night, will come tonight instead because of the weather. Um, Dan uh, is another person who was with us in Bodhgaya in 1970. And uh, for the past several years, he's been writing articles on science and the mind for the New York Times. And this fall, while you all were sitting, he had a book published called Emotional Intelligence, which is a kind of disguised Dharma book. Um, talking about the importance of the heart and uh, he doesn't use the word mindfulness he uses self-awareness the critical importance of self-awareness in life and and this book uh, has been a bestseller it's been on the New York Times bestseller list for weeks and weeks so um, he is the book the book is Emotional Intelligence and his name is Dan Goleman and he's supposed to come tomorrow night and is trying to. Um, as you can see, we have a strange karmic weather pattern over us. So uh, if everything goes as planned, we're going to have a ritual tonight, and he'll come tomorrow night. And if anything changes, we'll just post it on the board. For the ritual, um, we were hoping that if you uh, have a particularly inspiring um, short passage from somewhere, uh, part of a poem or something that has been meaningful or inspiring for you that you could just bring that. Um, You certainly are not compelled to. Not everybody needs to say something. But if there's something you would like to share that has been meaningful or important for you and is brief, (laughs) then, then that would be lovely. Do you have any questions? Yeah, you. Uh, two quick things. One is, um, 
How is the format different? Yeah, that's that's sort of a misprint. Um, uh, it's good that you brought that up. Um, uh, just somehow in the uh, design of the brochure, that implication was was put in. Um, the teachers of next year's three month course. Um, for the full course are, you know, <laughs> Joseph, uh, Carol, Steve Smith, Steve Armstrong. Michelle will be here just for the first six weeks. And uh, another friend named Kamala will be here for the second six weeks. So it's actually only Michelle and Kamala who are half and half. And I will be practicing. <laughs> No, it doesn't matter, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love this such paternal sutras for mindfulness. I don't know what's this practice is But I'm wondering if there's a sutra that addresses dependent origination and what it's called, and also Dukkha Vajan. Dukkha what? Okay, the question was about uh, suttas discussing different um, of the teachings. There are many, you know, and so the best thing to do uh, for a particular sutta on dependent origination or on the three characteristics actually is um, to uh, ask Andy Olensky in some way. I don't know if you're going down to the study center today, um, but... uh, he is either there or here. And is it today that there's some, yeah. So uh, several people, it seems, are going to go down today. There, there's just an introduction to the place. Um, and somebody, probably Andy, will be giving a talk. And uh, he is the perfect person to ask. He came into our lives as our poly teacher and um, uh, became the executive director of IMS. But, but he, is, he is sort of our principal scholarly uh, reference. <laughs> so. uh, I hope so. You should ask in the office. I don't know what, what's going on. Uh-huh. <laughs> There may be cars going down, you know, I'm not sure. So. Is it three? It's an absolutely beautiful place, so, uh, and well worth going. Yeah. Yes. Andy's going down, <laughs> Andy's going down to the study center full time. So, yeah. Do you go on planning or do you go on meditating? Okay. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. I'd say if it works to do it. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, um, you know, again, as, as we've talked about, the, the biggest variable in uh, practice in some way is the factor of concentration because it's a very fragile, rather dependent quality um, in terms of external circumstances. And so you will see wild swings in concentration both here and, and outside in the world. Uh, sometimes a single note, you know, concentration will be strong and a single note will allow us to see through something. Sometimes concentration won't be so strong, but that's all right. You know, that's just the way it is. Uh, and that's why we say mindfulness is more quality to rest the practice on and to uh, trust ultimately, for freedom, because it's not fragile. It's not dependent on things being a certain way. Well, it's uh, a lot of snow. I think freezing rain is coming soon today. Uh, but as you know, the weather, as much as people try to predict it, is rather unpredictable. So, but you should definitely check before you make the decision to drive home. The what? Oh, uh, I believe some. T- Elizabeth, do you know? Uh, I believe he's uh, doing a, a special on Houston Smith, who was a, a professor of religion and, and great writer and brought spirituality to the forefront of consciousness um, you know, some years ago. So. Those of you who would like to attend that sitting and... <laughs> be seen, that's fine, and if you don't, you're certainly welcome to sit in the library or do something else. You get a free retreat. <laughs> you get good karma. <laughs> All you have to do is sit, which you're doing anyway, <laughs> and be seen. <laughs> Fortunately not. <laughs> Uh, it, it was a chapel, you know, there were pews and the, um, you know, the uh, front was up here and the uh, <laughs> altar, thank you. <laughs> the, uh, thank you. Uh, there were, uh, many statues of the Virgin Mary throughout the dining room and other places. There was a baby grand piano in the dining room. There was a candle-making factory in the basement. There was a barber shop in the Catskills, you know. It was a, it was a self-enclosed community that... Um, were they a teaching room, were they? It was a novitiate. So, so there, yeah. 
And those of you who sat here years ago remember the curtains on the on the wall. They were here. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Do you know the meaning of the little R E T I don't. Uh, <laughs> I've often wondered that. Did you know what? Was the walking room always a walking room? Yes. I mean, it was. It was empty. Empty. Yeah. This. <laughs> Interior decoration. This is a, a was a gift from uh, a Thai visitor, and we used to hang a Burmese bell from there. the Burmese bells are the ones we ring for, you know, the people go around with. So, but it's going to get to be like the Catskills, you know. In 20 years, we'll have another idea about it, and we'll weave a legend around it. Mel, a question I've wondered about uh, from time to time since I heard the, the Dalai Lama bowl. The Dalai Lama did visit here in 1979, and he did, in fact, <laughs> throw a bowling ball down that down that lane. Okay, <laughs> well. Uh, and I think it, as you said, somebody uh, of us, amongst us, is having a rather difficult time, and it would be quite lovely just to, to send metta and, and to, um, for all of us, really. And uh, some people are leaving today or throughout the days and beginning their journey home, and um, it's quite beautiful to remain connected in that essential fashion. So... Okay, thank you. I had a dream last night that I came in this morning to lead this sitting, and you were all lying down watching television on a big screen on the wall. <laughs> so, were you? <laughs> Indeed. I wondered. I couldn't tell if it was a good dream or a bad dream, you know. If it meant you were so relaxed. <laughs> or so distracted. I was actually very relieved when I walked in here. It was as normal. <laughs> I didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why not? Mark. Did you say something about radical trust Yeah, no, they, I think they do go together. The question was about uh, radical trust and clinging or non-clinging. Um, I think it's a very interesting question. Uh, we experience it a thousand different ways all of the time. Um, and for some strange reason, the fork and the broccoli is coming up in my mind. <laughs> So here we are again. <laughs> you know, think what it means to um, to feel inside that we have to take that fork and and bash it. You know, it's like we're in a hurry and we have to make sure we connect. Um, it's that extra effort that is unnecessary because we can be relaxed and and doing what we need to do and trust that that's enough. Um, Joseph once said that he was practicing mindfulness in, in a retreat situation, but um, especially practicing in activity, daily activity. And he said that one of the first things he noticed was that he was holding onto his toothbrush as though it were a jackhammer about to leap out of his hand. You know, there's so much tension in what we do and so much distrust, so much extra effort and, and effort to control, you know, that uh, it kind of accumulates. 
And so what we really practice in a single moment is finding that balance where we're connected, but we're not doing that extra thing, um, which doesn't do any good anyway. You know, it's, it's not that that extra intensity of effort brings everything under control all of a sudden. Things are happening as they're happening according to conditions, and we need to, uh, in every moment, in a sense, feel our energetic relationship to things. Um, and most of the time, we need to settle back. Sometimes we need to come forward, you know, because we're just so disconnected. But quite a bit of the time, we need to relax. We need to trust and just do what we need to do and let, let everything else take care of everything else. It's better that way, yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's a little tricky because it depends on how you use those words. Uh, a very accurate sense of the near enemy of compassion um, is the word sorrow or, or grief or maybe most accurately, heartbrokenness. And again, it's not um, that we are categorizing these, those states as bad. We are, or they, you know, in the teachings, they are distinguished from compassion. And because they are so close, it's easy to confuse one for the other. So uh, it's important to understand what we're feeling accurately and, and not be not be confused by the, the closeness of them. Um, and the difference between those two is really uh, compassion is said to have a certain sense of wholeness or sufficiency with it, whereas heartbrokenness or grief is shattered. You know, it's broken. And, and there's not a lot of energy uh, to actually move to make change. You know, and so it's it's more like being sunk into a state um, and overcome by it, and and not feeling the uh, the capacity that we actually have to uh, to affect things, you know, to change things. Sometimes, um, in the very old translations, the word pity is used instead of compassion. You know, and so it's difficult because of the language to, to know exactly what is being talked about. It seems better to make the distinction as I just made it. So. And the second question, in daily life, uh, mm-hmm. there, there are times where uh, I have to motivate to sit because it seems quite remote and odd. Mm-hmm. And as I'm not uh, an Asian who has a teacher whom I blindly follow, <laughs> I need to do it for myself, look for motivation so that I really see mm-hmm. the evil mm-hmm. and then I say, okay, uh, to sit and be calm, and there might be some happiness, maybe rapture sails down or eat bigger things. Well, I think there there are several ways. One is I think you can you can uh, offer yourself the possibility of rapture and joy and bliss and calm, peace and all of those nice states. But once you sit down, let go. <laughs> you know, because that is that is the critical issue. It's not sort of what got you to sit down. It's what happens once you are sitting. 
uh, are you able to practice as you know to practice? You know, not, not being led by expectation and judgment and scorn when things don't meet your expectation and so on. Um, that seems the most important thing, is that no matter what gets you there, you practice with some confidence in your ability, which you should have, uh, to be mindful of, of what you're actually experiencing. And when I met on Thursday with that small group, I told a story uh, that was told to me, so forgive the repetition, those of you who were there, um, which happened when I uh, was very early on in my practice, living in India, um, and when I would sit down and all of those nice things would come, I would feel very delighted, and I would think, oh, you know, I'll practice for the rest of my life. But when I would sit down in my daily life, even in India, and... Um, start to practice and it would be physically painful or boring or I'd be restless or sleepy or something like that, I would get very discouraged right away and I would stop. I would just stand up and say, well, maybe tomorrow will be better or, you know, uh, next week will be better or I'll wait until I do the next retreat and then it will be better. And I was in a very bad cycle. Uh, because of that. So I went to uh, Menindra, who was my teacher at the time, and I said, this is what's happening. And he said to me, just put your body there. You know, that's what you need to do. You just put your body there every day. And your mind will do what it does, you know, and some days it will be up and some days it will be down. But that's irrelevant to your commitment, which is just to put your body there. It's just to do it. And so um, that's another way to motivate yourself, is just to have the commitment to sit. Uh, that is helped by not necessarily having um, an unrealistic time frame attached to that. You know, you may not be able to say, okay, I'm going to sit now for three hours, uh, because it, it just may not be possible. Um, and then the third thing, which is really... Um, taking that to another level uh, is something that Joseph's talked about a lot. I don't know if he's talked about it in the hall. Um, about somebody he met uh, who told him that his commitment in daily life was not to go to sleep at night until he had, le had at least gotten into the meditative posture, whether that's sitting on a cushion or on a chair, however you happen to sit. But that was his commitment that every day, even if it was for less than one minute, <laughs> he was going to place himself in the meditative posture. Because, of course, that's the hardest part. You know, once we're actually sitting there, if we have the understanding that anything might happen and we don't need to judge, then, you know, we can sit on. It doesn't have to stay limited to a minute and a half. Um, but getting there can be very difficult. And so something, either in the sense of, of that kind of commitment, uh, something, you know, is, is often necessary. Realizing it doesn't have to be a magnificent sitting, it doesn't have to be a lengthy sitting, but something would be really helpful. Phil? Well, in terms of the first point, um, it was always uh, interesting in Burma because um, 
you know, as we've mentioned, every meal is an offering from people. Uh, sometimes very wealthy people will come and offer food to all the people meditating there or some section of the people meditating there. And sometimes it would be very, very, very poor people offering the food. So you never knew um, what it was going to be. And uh, sometimes it would be like a whole family or a whole village coming together to offer the food. And when either it was a, a wealthy person or a large enough group so that they could pool their money, often they would hire somebody with a video camera to watch you eat. <laughs> <laughs> and Burmese food is very oily and you know it's like sitting in a very oily sauce and, and there would be these video cameras going and we were kind of like <laughs> trying not to have food dripping down our faces and down our clothes and um, it was an interesting <laughs> interesting uh, event <laughs> every day <laughs> and the nuisances seem to arise spontaneously <laughs> so but it, it is, um, there's always a balance, you know. The, people come to a retreat for a protected environment, but the reality is uh, we need to practice as a way of life. And so if uh, we get so insular, you know, that a slight sound really annoys us, we need to look at that, you know, so that we can expand our our ability to be balanced and um, recognize the, the power of mindfulness in that way. Because unfortunately, we have so little control over our environment anyway. You know, one could do a fantastic cartoon book of a meditator kind of gathering their cushions, you know, and, uh, making everything nice and smooth and wearing earplugs and eye masks and, you know. Um, but as Menindra used to say, what do you do with the mind? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Suddenly there's an annoying memory, you know, or something like that. It's inevitable that there's distraction, there's disturbance, and that's fine because that's what we have to work with. Yeah. 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 Okay. This sort of some connected to this. Um, so in practice, in, in this protective environment, in intensive practice, occasionally um, people have developed this type of psychiatric conditions. I've heard stories of, in the past of these retreats. And um, <laughs> they, they seem to be triggered by the practice. And since I'm now, you know, looking forward to a longer period of practice, I'm, I notice that my mind is kind of clinging to this as a source of fear. That why does this happen, and how can I kind of safeguard myself? Or, you know, those kinds of questions. Well, <laughs> um... I think that it's, you know, balance is always the key. And uh, working toward balance in every level, kind of the micro level and the macro level. Um, people in Burma, for example, uh, except for Westerners, do not do very long periods of intensive practice. Um, they do practice and then they leave. They go out into the world. Um, and then they come back, perhaps, but uh, they don't tend to do very long periods of intensive practice because as they practice in Burma, um, it's very, well, you can tell from the tapes, you know, it's very ardent, uh, it's very intense, and they like people to really practice wholeheartedly with full effort for a short period of time and then take a break. That's a short period. Two or three months. You know, and then and then they'll stop in general, um, and then they'll come back. Now, because Westerners go, you know, and it's so expensive, and you need a visa and all that, um, for much longer periods of time, 
they just work with the balance in a different way. And so uh, it depends on a relationship with a teacher. It depends on your own intuition and the instructions of the teacher. Um, and uh, I would say, yes, intensive practice is not for everybody. And we try to express that. You know, if you're under a tremendous amount of stress, if, uh, you know, you feel extremely vulnerable, it's not the time to go into intensive retreat. You know, we put that in print and we send that out and um, it's true. You know, it doesn't mean that one needs to be disconnected from the Dharma in any way. It means that the format, the particular format of silence, intensive practice, you know, so little contact is not always appropriate, you know, for a person at a certain time. And so um, it is a personal decision one makes, you know, given that information, uh, that, yeah, I feel like, you know, things are, things are okay. And as you all know, it's not a path free of suffering. And so um, it really all comes down to one's ability to be balanced with what, what is happening. You know, the the other thing about Burma, just to kind of enlarge our vision of the Dharma, you know, that there are many ways of being fully connected to and participating in the Dharma without necessarily doing intensive practice in this form. And so uh, when these people stop doing intensive practice in Burma, that doesn't mean, you know, they just lose it. It means that they're studying, or they're doing something else, or they're doing devotional practice, or they're offering dana, or they're, you know, they're doing something that is extremely rich and alive uh, and very, very connected. They're just not doing this only. And so, you know, because we have so little in this country uh, in terms of forms, we're all creating the forms right now. We're you know, this generation of practitioners are like the pioneers. And so um, people tend sometimes to fixate on intensive retreat because it's the most powerful, obvious form that's, that's available. And, of course, it's a wonderful form. You know, it's, it's a really tremendous thing to do. Um, but it's not the only one. You know, and so... Uh, as you go along, even making, you know, even with that intention, uh, it's just to have a really open view and a lot of self-respect, recognizing that you may feel it's time to stop, your teacher may feel it's time to stop, and that's fine, you know, that's not a terrible thing, that this particular form in this way is no longer appropriate. You know, it's... Mm-hmm. Is this the only wisdom practice? Is that correct? This is the only wisdom practice? <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I mean, I, I also want to distinguish practice from the form of intensive retreat. You know, that's kind of my point, is that um, if, you are, if you work with the model of the paramis, for example, one of which is wisdom, uh, the entire practice in its complete range you know, of generosity and morality and loving kindness and wisdom and energy and I don't know if I can remember them all <laughs> and uh, resolve and renunciation, you know, and all of that equanimity, um, patience, truthfulness, got it, <laughs> those ten. <laughs> that was all ten. Um, that's a life, you know. Sometimes we practice that in intensive retreats, sometimes we practice that in life. But it's all the same thing. And so uh, it's really the form I'm talking about here. You know, that it's a wonderful, powerful form. Obviously, you know, we support it. <laughs> um, you know, but it's not the, the entire domain of practice. And we're all limited if we begin to believe that that's so. Oh. Okay, it's time to uh, disperse. Shen, yeah. before we disperse, there was a, you know, we're going to these little groups that people are organizing. And uh, a lot of people are torn. I myself am torn because they all look really great. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering whether or not anyone would mind if we stagger them slightly so that we can just 
case of Well, I don't mind. I don't know. Uh, you know, like maybe one group can start at 9.15 and the next can start at uh, 9.45. We'll do two this morning and shot them this afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Okay. Or perhaps discuss it somewhere other than in here so we can do our best to maintain the Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.